Hey y'all, it's Crystal. And it's Samantha. And this is Serial Holic Sisters. True crime shit. What up, girl? Hey. How's it going? How's it going? (laughs) Just having those technical difficulties. Oh my gosh. I knew when you told me that you got this new mic that the first time you used it, it was going to be a thing. (laughs) Well, because the first time I used it, I didn't test it. Like a no. normal person. No, we're like, we're going to record now. And she's like, I got a new mic today. And I was <laughs> like, okay. And then she's like, all right, you ready to record? And nothing worked because somebody <laughs> refuses to read instructions to anything ever. <laughs> so, and I had to, so I had to get a new microphone because, well, it's, it's crazy. I actually have a couple. The first microphone that I got was like, like I just have a few lying around. Like, I do doesn't? though. I know it's weird, but um, my husband used to game a lot like he built his computer he built like this super expensive like gaming computer or whatever that he now doesn't use like of course as a gaming computer <laughs> right um but he had gotten all the like the microphones and all that stuff and like he spent a good chunk of money on a really expensive microphone funny thing is every time I try to plug it in to use it or to, like to use it to do our podcast um, it was making weird noises and I didn't like it. Yeah, no, it was weird. It was weird bothering noises. me. So then I bought a small one, like a tiny one that I could cart around with me. Yeah. And um, it's just, it's, it doesn't work right on my computer. I don't know if I'm just like not, there's like 12 plugs. <laughs> You're like, I don't know if I'm just not reading the instructions or. <laughs> I know. So um, they, I caught this really good sale on another pretty expensive microphone and it actually was crazy good and it was like you sent it to me right after you bought it and I tried to do it and they were like already done with it I was like Damn. yes yeah I was super lucky to get it and and I got it and then I was like oh who needs to read instructions <laughs> or try to set it up before I try to record at all no big deal we'll just it's do fine. this we'll wing it <laughs> So we've really been trying to record for like 30 minutes, but hey, <laughs> not really. It hasn't been 30, but it's, it's cool. It's cool. It's all good. Anywho, I did my last photo session this weekend. You did. It's over. I did. It's over. I'm, I'm done. I've had a closed up shop officially. Bittersweet. Yesterday. But other than that, that's all that's new. Anything new with you? You know, there isn't. I never is. I'm just employment life. <laughs> just home with my kiddos, enjoying that and helping them with school. That's really dumb, and I don't remember how to do any of it. So I'm super helpful. Oh, okay. Well, especially at least math. you can spend at least you can spend weeks on 22 pages of notes. Are you guys ready? That's what you get. <laughs> That's what you get this time. It's my turn, and I've decided. I'm doing our very first two-parter ever because there's way too much stuff to do it in one episode. Mm-hmm. So every time Sam talked to me this week, she's like, what you doing? And I'm like, research and notes. And she's like, still? <laughs> <laughs> and so I, I talked to her today and I was like, I'm finally done with my notes. And I was like, oh my God, what did this horrible person do? <laughs> because she doesn't know who it is, but y'all have read the title, so you know. So <laughs> I've decided to do a super infuriating case. Um, it's super infuriating because justice has still never been found for three innocent oh. little boys that lost their lives. You guess yet? I think so. Go on. 
this horrific, terrible crime actually affected the lives of six children forever. Um, so this week I'm covering the West Memphis Three. Yep, I. That's exactly what. You know, this case is actually going to piss me off. I'm just going to go ahead and say. I that. mean, I've just been pissed this whole week, <laughs> just so you know. You know, and and it's funny because I actually told Crystal that she needed to do this case because I thought that this case was going to be a really good one for her. We grew up near there. <laughs> like super close yeah literally super close um it, I was just... I was seven years old when this all took place yeah so I don't I remember three. a lot of it yeah I don't remember a lot of it firsthand but I definitely remember like hearing things about it at the time but not like a ton yes seven. and now like being an adult and reading about it and knowing all about it and um it just it makes me so mad too because these boys I don't care what anybody says. We'll get into it, but they're innocent. We will get into it. And yes. So <laughs> I've actually been, you know, you, you suggested I cover it. And I've been wanting to cover it for a while. And I started reading The Devil's Knot by Mara Leverett like a while yeah. back. I haven't read that yet, but I, it's on my it's list. So good. And I finished it two weeks ago, I think. And I was like, okay, it's time. Like I have to, I need to do this. Um. After I finished the book, I immediately watched all three of the Paradise Lost documentaries. Yes, I've seen those. Yes. And then I got online and I found like tons and tons and tons of websites about this case. Like I got lost in so many websites. <laughs> um, like I even found one. Oh, I can't remember what it's called. Callahan something. Um, but it had like all like the police reports and autopsy, autopsy reports and like documents from the trials and all kinds of stuff. I'll have to remember what that website was. Yeah. Um, Maybe I'll put it in the notes of the description okay. of the show. Yeah. Um, cool. Cool, cool, so cool. yeah. Okay. I need you to get all comfy and settled I'm in. Comfy. Because I've got nice. my fake. I've got my fake wine. My my sparkling grape. What the hell? <laughs> I can't even talk to you. <laughs> okay. I have to work tomorrow. <laughs> That's true. En- enjoying. Enjoy that. Your faux wine. Um, <laughs> fake sparkling grape juice. Because, you know, around this time of year, they always come out with, like, the white grape. And the, it's yummy, yeah. The red grape or whatever. It's yes, so I get it for my and children for New Year's I know, Eve. I was going to say, you know, you know how we used to drink that shit <laughs> on, like, New Year's Eve when yes. we were growing up? Because that was that was our our beer or wine. <laughs> that, was our, that was our wine cooler. Well, I bought myself two tonight. <laughs> get it girl you just get it lord jesus okay (laughs) so i think i'm gonna go over the crime itself first so trigger warning for everyone there's like harsh details you might as well just stay right now trigger warning for the whole yeah just trigger warning for everything it's a pretty infuriating brutal case but go on yeah so i'll go over the crime and then we'll get into the investigation and like how the case turned into basically a modern day witch trial like straight up Salem style so all right May 5th 1993 West Memphis Arkansas is where we begin so three eight-year-old boys Michael Moore Christopher Byers and Stevie Branch are reported missing so Chris Byers stepfather John Mark Byers was the first to call the police so Mark called West Memphis police around eight that night and within 10 minutes an officer Regina Meek was at their house on East Spartan Street. Byers told Meek that the last time he saw his stepson was at 5.30 p.m. when Chris was cleaning the yard. 
So Officer Meek took a report and she left the buyer's house. And then at 924, she gets a call about another missing child. But this one, and this one's like right across the street from the first call. Mm-hmm. So this is Dana Moore and she's reporting her son, Michael, missing. And the last time she saw Michael was around 6 p.m. that day. And she last saw him riding his bicycle with his two best friends, Chris and Stevie. So she said she lost sight of the boys and she sent his sister, Dawn, to go look for them and to tell him to come home. And Dawn wasn't able to find them. So um, the same time that Moore is reporting Michael missing, another officer has been called to Catfish Island. And that's a restaurant nearby. And there's a woman named Pam Hobbs that's working there. And so she's calling to report her son, Stevie Branch, missing. So Stevie was friends with Michael and Chris, and he lived a few blocks away from them on Macaulay Drive. All right, so Hobbs reported that Stevie had left home, and after he got home from school, nobody had seen him like since then. So the officer that took this report did not note who was supposed to be watching Stevie while Pam was at work or who notified her that he was missing. She was just like working the whole time and somehow found out and the officer didn't even like ask who told her. I was about to say, which is a super weird thing to do because one of the first things, (laughs) I mean, literally one of the first things that you should be finding out is the last time you saw them. Right. um, Who talked to them last? Uh, (laughs) Like all these types of details. Right. So her husband, um, Stevie's stepfather, Terry, was actually home then. Like, he, he's the one that was supposed to be there, like, watching him or whatever. Like, he was home while she was working. So, but the officer didn't, like, find any of that out right then. Um, so, word spreads through the neighborhood, and everyone starts looking for the boys, okay? Mm-hmm. Some people reported seeing some boys, three or maybe four, riding their bikes near the dead end of Macaulay Drive shortly before sunset. So, that's, like, where Stevie lived. Um, at the dead end of that road was a four-acre patch of woods, and that had become known as Robin Hood Hills to everyone in the area, except the kids just called it Robin Hood. So on the other side of that little wooded area, on the other side of Robin Hood, was two interstate highways and their service roads and Blue, Blue Beacon Truck Wash. So it's like neighborhood, woods, a truck stop, and highways. Um, okay. Like the woods were kind of like a barrier between the neighborhood and the highways and all that stuff. So parents would always tell the kids to stay out of the woods because they're like, it's not safe. Who knows? Could be like lurking around in there. There's a truck stop right there. There's a highway. Like stay out of the woods. Well, yeah. I mean, that's kind of like this automatic thing, right? Right. You would say, yeah. Don't go in the woods, kids. (laughs) Don't go in the woods. Well, you know, kids. And I know. Curiosity. (laughs) curiosity and that's like a it seems like a cool place for them there's like trees and ravines and all that stuff they like go out there and build forts and they go fishing and they tie ropes up in the trees and like swing over the water yeah so it was all like fun stuff for them but like parents were like no stay out of the creepy woods like what the hell um but then once it got dark most of the kids did stay away from there like it didn't seem fun then because it was creepy so parents and like adults in the neighborhood searched four hours that not four hours, but like for hours, <laughs> four hours, <laughs> they, searched exactly. they searched four hours and decided that's it. That's I'm good. It. We looked for four hours, <laughs> like as in for many hours, <laughs> several hours <laughs> all night. Um, they searched all night. Anyways, officer makes the one that had taken the reports from buyers and more 
she reported that she'd tried looking in the woods, but the mosquitoes had driven her out. So I know, like being close to that area, how mosquitoes are crazy. Because they like, I mean, every time I step outside, they eat me alive. I mean, they are. They are crazy. Especially after it rains in the humid area that it is. And it it had rained a ton a few days before that. Well, not just that, but like wooded areas typically have creeks that run through in that area. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, there was. Yeah. yeah. And it's just, it's a monsoon. It's a monsoon out there. It's all those mosquitoes. So mosquitoes drove her out. She didn't really check it out good. Um, another officer that had taken the, the other one that had taken the report from Hobbs, he later said that he had taken a flashlight and he'd searched the woods for like half an hour. And those, that's the only police action taken that night, like at all. There wasn't an organized police search until the next morning. So all night it was just like parents and like just adults around the neighborhood Volunteers. looking for them. Right. Um, at 6 a.m. the next morning, Chief Inspector Gary Glitchell announced that the three boys were missing and that he would be directing a search for them. So after hours of searching without finding anything, um, Memphis police sent a helicopter to help assist them. Um, officers and citizens searched the neighborhood and the woods for hours and they didn't find, like they weren't finding any sign of the boys at all. And by noon, most of the searchers had stopped searching the woods and they were like looking in other places. Uh, Crittenden County Juvenile Officer Steve Jones, he stayed in the woods. And at around 1.30, he was searching the area of the woods that's closest to the Blue Beacon truck wash. Mm-hmm. And he looked down into a gully and he saw a boy's black tennis shoe floating in the water. So he radioed in what he found and Sergeant Mike Allen rushed to where he was. Okay, so it's going to get rough for a second. Um, Sergeant Allen was the first to get in the water and he began searching and the water was like super murky. You couldn't see, see anything. And he described the mud at the bottom as like shoe grabbing mud. So like when he tried to like take a step and raise his foot up. So um, like quicksand. Type. Yeah. It was basically like trying to suction his foot down. Mm-hmm. It's making it super difficult to walk, suctioning it down, all that stuff. Um, around 145, a child's lifeless naked body slowly rose to the surface of the water in front of him. So, like, when he moved, I guess the mud suctioning, like, let it, like, the kid was kind of stuck in the mud, basically. Yeah. Um, so Michael Moore was the first body to be found. And then, um, not long after, Stevie Branch was found, and then minutes later, after Stevie, Chris Byers was found. Um, by the time Chris was found, it was around three o'clock. So it took them like a little over an hour after finding Michael to find the other two boys. Mm-hmm. During that time, they also found the boys' clothes um, and their shoes minus the shoelaces and their bicycles. So their clothes had been like shoved down into the mud under the water and like pinned under there with sticks so they wouldn't float up. So they couldn't be found like easily. Um, all three of the boys had been stripped naked, severely beaten. And kind of like backwards hogtied with their own shoelaces. So their hands and feet were behind them and they were tied. So like the left ankle was tied to the left wrist and the right ankle was tied mm-hmm. to the right wrist. So they were like bent backwards in this like terrible unnatural pose. Um, along with being severely beaten all over their little bodies, um, Stevie's left side of his face had super savage injuries that were very deep. And he also had... Um, 
what appeared to be possibly a bite mark on his face. And uh, the severity of the wounds on Michael's head suggested like just straight up rage. And when detectives got Christopher out of the water, they discovered, this is real rough, they discovered his scrotum was completely gone and his penis appeared to have been skinned. Okay, so around 3.20, almost two hours after finding the first body, somebody was like, oh shit, we should call the coroner. Well, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, thanks. A little late there, bruh. (laughs) A little late to the party. So the coroner finally arrived on the scene at four o'clock. Four o'clock. That is, I'm, okay. Yeah, the boys had been missing for nearly a full 24 hours by then. So there's a few problems with this. Well, yeah, it's not just a few, but okay. <laughs> yeah, like the, <laughs> mainly problems with like forensic evidence, you know, no biggie. You know, all of the legal. <laughs> just like, yeah, you know, no, they don't know what time the murders occurred. And part of, part of the coroner's job is to try to determine this. Well, yeah. So without having a coroner present as soon as possible after a body is discovered, it becomes super difficult for them to be able to determine the time of death, obviously. Mm-hmm. But especially when you take into consideration how hot it was outside and where the boys were found and that they were, like, completely submerged underwater. So, like, as a general rule, the sooner after death the body's examined, the more accurate the estimated time of death is going to be. And the most commonly used factors to help determine the time of death are body temperature, rigor mortis, so, like, the stiffening of muscles and joints Mm -hmm. and all that, and liver mortis, so that's, like, the change in skin color after death. Yes. Yeah. So, body temp. The high was 82 degrees on May 6th, the day they were found. That would have clearly affected the victim's body temperatures and thrown things out of whack, especially since they were, like, also underwater. Yes. So, it's 82 degrees above the water, and then who knows what's going on underwater, like, and then rigor mortis had already set in on the boys when they were found. And I'm not an expert at all, but, like, like I said, the being submerged underwater for who knows how long, wouldn't that, like, affect the liver mortis aspect of it? Like, Yeah, it can. Yeah, I would think so. No, it can. Um, <laughs> along with, uh, I mean, all of your organs when you die, there's <laughs> pretty much just, like, that's where bloating often yeah. begins. Yeah. Um, and underwater, like, so, water speeds stuff up. Yeah. I was going to say, a so lot. when you are found in the water, <laughs> yeah, um, your body is found, even with the rigor mortis, with, with the child being stiff, he's also bloated. Mm-hmm. And um, if they waited an hour or even two hours for the coroner to be and that was- um, notified, yeah. now you're, you're looking at there being so many difficulties when they have to go in and actually take out said organs to and this is also after the body and so they find the bodies in the water well they didn't want to leave the bodies in the water and so they set them on the bank well yeah so that's what that drastically changed like their body temperature and all that stuff just in that and then waited a few hours and when it's 80 something degrees outside I know a lot of people think that the water's cooler that's why you know you go in and you're swimming and you're all nice and and cool and stuff but actually the water temperature is typically um a few degrees hotter 
than it is outside, just so you know. I said, is that so? Yeah, so. <laughs> little fun fact for you. <laughs> so you're actually, you're actually looking like there's, there's a lot wrong with this. Whole there's situation. a lot wrong at the very beginning. So why, you ask, why would it be so important to try to get a close to accurate time of death? Well, one reason would be like, well, a big part of investigation, <laughs> a big person, a big person, a big part of investigations <laughs> in crimes is like the alibi. Well, yeah, you need like, to know who the last person that saw them was. Right. Now, now you're looking at, okay, you don't know the time of death. So this person was killed when? Who knows? Who well, knows? now all you know is that the last person that supposedly saw the ones that were called in were their parents at this time. So from then on, how can you validate that they were seen prior to that? Right. Like you can't ask somebody, where were you between these times? Because no you don't know these times no like if someone has a solid alibi at the time that a crime occurs and it's really easy to rule them out as a suspect but with and, no and the bad accurate, thing is yeah exactly and the bad thing is now you're like going back to the parents that called in their missing child and saying okay well you're technically a suspect now because i don't know the time of death and right right you're the last person that supposedly saw them so <sighs> so two hours after michael moore's body was found the coroner arrived on the scene that's where we are by this time, flies and insects had started to swarm around the boys' bodies. Yep. Yeah. Glitchell ordered that the stream be drained in that area in hopes that he would find, like, any kind of evidence that would help. Um, yeah, good luck. And, like, murder weapon, anything. Yeah, they didn't really find anything. Um, word had traveled to the parents of the victims that the boys had been found and, like, a crowd had been gathered, but they had, like, taped off the area so nobody could get back there. And so when Glitchell got back to the crowd, he was met by Terry Hobbs. That was Stevie Branch's stepdad, the one that was mm -hmm. home, supposedly home when his mom was at work at the mm -hmm. restaurant. Um, Glitchell told him that the boys' bodies had been found and that it was clear that they had been murdered. And Ham Hobbs, the mom, she screamed and collapsed to the ground crying. And it, <laughs> that moment was actually shown in the Paradise Lost documentary, and it's like freaking heartbreaking to watch. Like, there was a lot of video footage from that day in the documentary because along with taking pictures of the crime scene, you know, everything was being filmed as evidence. Well, yeah, back then it wasn't like it is now. So now when you watch documentaries, a lot of the stuff that you see are like recreations. Like reenactments, yeah. Yeah. Um, um, so trigger warning, if you haven't watched those documentaries and you want to, the bodies of the boys are shown in the beginning. And it's like super shocking to see if you don't know what's coming. So you're yeah. all warned. I've seen them, so they, yeah. it is, it's definitely, it's, it's definitely a documentary that is a must-see if you want to know a lot about this case, but at the same time, um, it's not like documentaries that you see nowadays, so brace yourself. Right. So, um, Mark Byers, um, he spoke to reporters. He was the first one that called and reported them missing. Um, he was Chris Byers' stepdad. Mm -hmm. he spoke to reporters and that's something that he's going to continue to do often in the years to come regarding this case and anything else he could use to get on tv he becomes like super dramatic and theatrical on camera well yeah and he wants everyone to hear what he has to say he's just like cameras look at me um he uh seemed shocked when he found out where the boys were located 
and he told reporters that he was out searching the night before until 4.30 in the morning, and he had walked within 10 or 15 feet of where they were found and hadn't seen them, which is highly possible because they were, like, underwater, you know? Well, they were, yeah, I was going to say, they were, like, stuck underwater. Right. Unless he was, like, walking in the creek. Right. Where they were found. Right. It's really sad. They were actually found just, like, a few hundred yards from where they were last seen at the end of the road. It, they were only like a half a mile from Michael Moore and Chris Byers' houses. Yeah. Um, then he goes on to tell reporters any details that he had heard so far about the state that the boys were found in. So like anything that he heard about how they were found, he's like telling reporters about it. So by this time, news reporters from like all the nearby big cities were there. So like Memphis is there, Little Rock, Jonesboro. Um, Glitchell just told them like the basics, like there were three missing boys they'd been found and this was now a murder investigation but he wouldn't like give them any other details Mm -hmm. well someone working at the commercial appeal which is the big newspaper in memphis they listened to the newsroom's police scanner that night and they picked up a broadcast from the arkansas state police that had details about the case that hadn't been released yet oh god right so the next morning they ran a story in the paper with these details including like how the boys had been tied up when they were found. And the article also like incorrectly stated that all three of the boys had been sexually mutilated. They just like got that all wrong. They misunderstood or something. Um, So now everyone in town is like freaked out. They're like, there's this terrible murder on the loose. They're like all panicking. It's not safe in the area. Police under a bunch of pressure to try to find who did this and get them off the streets. Um, By May 10th, there was still no word of any breaks in the case. And everyone wanted to blame someone. So well, that's like most cases, though. That is. So enter Satan. <laughs> enter Satan. <laughs> well, dun dun dun. Well, in this case, they cue the, panic. Cue, <laughs> cue the music. Yes. Cue the phantom of the opera type music. Right. <laughs> okay, not exactly Satan. In this case, satanic panic. But yeah, enter Satan. <laughs> um. So Glitchell did make a statement in the next few days after the boys were found that caught everyone's attention. So he said the detectives were considering a wide range of possibilities, including that the murders may have resulted from, quote, gang or cult activity. Even though he also told them that he had seen no evidence of this, he was just like, we need to consider everything. So being the Delta in the South and time that it happened rumors start circulating that the murders were the work of satanists and even rumors were going around that you could hear the sounds of devil worshiping coming from those woods oh my goodness <laughs> yes it's, it's, a, it's happening the devil's here um devil 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 devil, devil. <laughs> a reward fund has i been- always say it, it doesn't matter anytime i hear that i immediately think of Waterboy. boy like we're always <laughs> drawn back to water boy we are drawn back to it's it's whoa 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 water boy i mean it's just <laughs> he, he's just in everything we do in life <laughs> oh. you're so lame <laughs> yeah Anyways. basically there's probably people that's like what is water boy and we do, they don't get it under they don't understand anything we're saying and it's fine um so a, re- a reward i can't say words reward fund had been set up for any information leading to the arrest of the murderer and police started getting tons of tips, like, you know, like sounds of devil worshiping and whatnot, those kind of tips. Yeah. 
Um, it seemed that right off the bat, even though Glitchell himself said there were no signs of gang or cult activity, that this is what they're going to try to go with. So, like, cop the police were in a tight spot, and they had no leads, and they had no evidence. There wasn't a ton of blood at the crime scene, which was crazy, because with Chris Byers alone, there should have been, like, a ton of blood. Well, um, not when they're underwater. Right, exactly. They had no murder weapon, no motive, and no idea who could have done this. So, usually in cases like that, police look into the families first, which is, like, truly terrible but also sometimes needed because sometimes it is the families that do these terrible things. So I am going to get into a few of the parents' backgrounds and then we'll go from there. So I'm going to start with Mark Byers. Dear Colgate, I love that you love that I love being at home. He even let me whiten my teeth from home. Because you know how I feel about getting up from my cloud couch. The Colgate Optic White LED Kit gives professional-level results in just 10 minutes a day for 10 days when used as directed. And that's why, Colgate, I want you to meet my parents. Because ever since meeting you, I've been living life to the brightest. Colgate Optic White. Find it at all major retailers. Okay, so Mark Byers was Chris's stepdad. Mark was a jeweler, a drug dealer, and a friend of the police. So before marrying by Mal friend of the and by friend of the police, you mean somebody that gives out information. <laughs> exactly. I'll get into that. <laughs> so before marrying Melissa, um, Chris's mom, in 1987, he had a rocky first marriage. That ended after police were called to their house because Mark was threatening to kill her. And he was like acting all crazy and holding her there with a power zapper, like a bug zapper. <laughs> yeah, he was, he was going to zap her if she didn't give him custody of their two kids. He did not get that custody. So instead, his ex-wife, right, his ex-wife brought a police recording that she had made of him threatening to kill her at a different time. And he was arrested and sentenced to three years of probation. Okay, so all he had to do for this probation was keep a job and keep up on his child support that he was now ordered to pay. He didn't do either of those things. So he married Melissa, and she had two sons from a previous relationship, Chris and Ryan. So Melissa had a history of being a heroin addict. And the two of them opened a jewelry store in 1989, and they bought a two-story house with an in-ground swimming pool, living the high life, all fancy. Um, <laughs> but the jewelry store failed after not even a full year, and he filed bankruptcy. So neighbors all wondered, like, how they afforded the house, because she was mm -hmm. a cleaning lady, and he was just selling jewelry at, like, local flea markets at this point. Um, well, it turns out something you know he was working as an undercover drug informant for the police yep so even though he had been convicted of terroristic threatening against his ex-wife and he hadn't paid any of his child support his record was formally expunged so they needed somebody to tell him stuff they did um nine months before the murders he had been arrested for conspiring to sell cocaine and carrying a dangerous weapon but he was just, like, released that night without any explanation. And then five months before the murders, he was under suspicion of felony theft, which could have landed him in prison.
but this also just like resolved in his favor. So he didn't have exactly a squeaky clean background. Just one that involved, you know, like violence and drugs and weapons and all that stuff. You know, that's fine. Mm -hmm. um, at the time that the boys disappeared, he was taking Chris's brother, Ryan, to court. I think it was actually his stepbrother. I think Ryan's his stepbrother. I think it's his stepbrother's. But little. not Mark's son. No. So he's taken Ryan to court. Before he drove him to court, Chris had gotten in trouble for breaking into the house after he got home from school. So he got home from school and nobody was home yet and he didn't have a key. So apparently he had broken a seal on one of the windows when he was trying to get in. And then Mark got home and saw this and he was like mad. And he told police that he had whipped Chris with a belt either two or three times. And then told um, them that as a punishment, he told Chris he needed to clean the yard up while he was gone. So then he went to take Ryan to court. And when he got back at about 630, Chris was missing. There's um, some things that like, like corroborate that story. And then there's some things that the times are kind of off. Like, he definitely did go to the court, but, like, his times of being at court were, like, different than some records or something like that. Um, but, yeah, so that's Mark Byers. And then we're going to go into Terry Hopps a little bit. That was Stevie Branch's stepfather. So he had a little bit of a criminal background also. When he was 24, he broke into the home of a neighbor while she was in the shower. And according to her, he, like, grabbed her breast like what the hell kind of what okay. is that <laughs> oh, don't mind me I just came in here to grab this like what the hell is that so she said that she then started like screaming like crazy and just like freaking out and her window was open and there was people outside so she thinks because she was being so loud that he ran out of the house and just like left but she was sure that he she said she was sure he intended to do more than just grab her breast so there's that um he had a history of a violent background and he was accused of molesting his son from his first marriage. Um, then he and Pam get married in 1986. And that's when Stevie was one and a half. And the two of them had supposedly been having problems with their marriage before the murders took place. And two weeks after the murders, he left Pam and just like went to Hardy, Arkansas. It's like 120 miles from West Memphis. Mm -hmm. So in doing this, he avoided being brought in and questioned by the police. He wasn't interviewed by police at the time of the crimes and was never called to testify at the trials. He had no alibi. At one point, he claimed to be with, like, certain people. But, like, all these people were like, no, he was not. <laughs> like, no. <laughs> Wasn't with us. Uh, um, <laughs> they're like, no, you weren't, sir. He claimed to search the area where the boys were found with Officer Meek. But she testifies that she didn't see him at all that night. So that's sketchy um yeah um that's not just sketchy that's like what the fuck were you doing bro that's suspicious. um he also <laughs> denies ever seeing any of the boys that afternoon after school that day but there are neighbors that say they saw him with the boys so one of these neighbors jamie clark ballard she did an interview for paradise lost her um she and her family lived three houses down from the hobbs at the time and she said that she drove past terry with the boys and the boys like the boys were on their bikes and terry was standing there with them drove past them at 6 30 and she remembers that it was at 6 30 because they her family were all on their way to church 
So she said that she called and reported this information to a tip line because police never came to question them to see if they'd seen anything, even though they only lived three doors down. Which is weird. Yeah. So from the beginning, Pam's family accused him of the murders. Um, According to Terry, his brother-in-law, Jackie Hicks Jr., regularly threatened him, saying that he knew that he killed Stevie. And in November of 1994, so like over a year after the boys were killed, um, about a year and a half, Terry hit Pam, and Pam called her family and was like, hey, dude, he hit me. So Jackie comes to help her, and him and Terry start fighting, and Terry shot him in the gut. (laughs) Just, like, shot him. And sadly, Jackie ended up dying 10 years later during a follow-up surgery from that wound. So Terry was, we're going past the murders. He was arrested in 03 for drug possession. There are multiple accusations of him sexually abusing his and Pam's daughter. And he's had restraining orders against him and him and Pam are divorced now. He never took a polygraph test about the case. And now he refuses to take one and refuses to provide fingerprints and footprints. So like none of this looks good for him at all. No. Not a good look. Um, Michael Moore's parents are Todd and Dana Moore and they were the only parents of the three boys that were still married to each other and neither one of them had a criminal background. They were like very private throughout like everything going on. They were quiet and reserved in front of cameras. Um, it's really so sad. It's like heartbreaking to watch. Um, in one interview, Todd was talking about like all the questions that he has and he can't like stop asking him stuff. And he's like, I can't stop asking myself if Michael was calling for me while he was being beaten and murdered. Oh my God. Right? Like so freaking sad. So let's get back to the satanic panic a little bit. Police uh, needed to find a murderer. And like I said before, they mentioned that they were looking into all the possibilities of who that was. Mm -hmm. Well, from what I can see, they didn't look into many possibilities at all. Like, from what I see, they already had somebody in mind, and they just needed to figure out how to link him to the crime. So, like, their investigation was not going great. For weeks following the discovery of the boys, there wasn't much more they knew besides the location of where they were found and the conditions of the bodies that they were found in, um, how the bodies were found. So, mm-hmm. they had found one fingerprint in the mud and one, like, partial footprint. And that's, like, basically it. Besides the leaked incorrect information that was being reported and the failure to even think to get the coroner to the bodies in a reasonable amount of time, they had other problems. So there's like tons of confusion and disorganization in like the entire investigation. Um, see, there was lots of concerns later on in the trials with the quality and the completeness of their records. Like some officers would like take notes and in the notes they didn't write names or dates or anything like that and they would like leave them unsigned i just don't understand like this whole case actually pisses me off and i know yeah and it's just because like it's pure laziness is Mm -hmm. what it is that's how it appears it is pure laziness i mean you learn this stuff from the get-go i'm literally going to school for it like this is your job do your job (laughs) and that you learn this stuff from the gig it is the core stuff that if, you have to learn if you to don't want go to and have this career. If you don't want to do this job, then get a different job. Like, 
Okay, so that makes me mad. Okay, um, they filed copies of fingerprints without attaching names. They showed people photo lineups in their search for suspects, but they didn't record whose photos were shown, and if any of them were recognized, they didn't record any of that. Which made no sense in doing it. Right. Um, there was another big police blunder, and that was with the boys' clothing that they'd recovered from the water. So they said the clothes had to dry before they could send them to the state crime lab. Okay. Mm -hmm. So detectives said that they placed the clothes into paper grocery sacks and they took them back to the station to let them dry. Okay. Then supposedly after they had dried, they put the clothes back into the same sacks that they'd brought them in and then sent them to the, to the crime lab in those bags. Well, the crime lab says that the sacks that they received showed no watermarks or any other signs of ever being wet. So if they didn't put them back into the original sacks, they could have lost important evidence like fibers. Well, yeah. So, yeah, so they don't really have a list of suspects yet and they're bumbling around left and right. Like, what are you doing? So let's talk about Jerry Driver and this is where they get their list of suspects. So Jerry Driver was a Crittenden County, he was the Crittenden County's chief juvenile probation officer. So he wasn't a police officer. He was nope. a probation officer. His job was basically. Guy. He's a dumbass. <laughs> How do you feel? He's a dumbass. <laughs> he is a dumbass and doesn't deserve to even be a correctional fucking probation officer. Because he's not even an officer. He's not. He just needs to sit his ass down. He's a dumbass. This guy makes me mad. Man, that, that sparkling grape <laughs> juice is really getting to you. Um, uh, no, <laughs> yeah, got that, got that sparkling grape. <laughs> Anyways, so his job was basically to keep track of kids who got in trouble with the law in the past. Mm -hmm. That's what a probation officer does, a juvenile and probation frame officer. Them. <laughs> and frame them. <laughs> so remember, <laughs> remember Steve Jones. That was the yeah. one who first spotted the the child's shoe floating in the water. So Steve was Driver's assistant at that time. Mm -hmm. So when Driver heard about the murders, um, like he got all this inside info from his assistant, he said that he was shocked, but he was not surprised. In fact, he was pretty positive. He knew who did it. Yeah. Yeah. With what? You were pretty positive. This, this, so, oh, it's like the Casey Anthony case. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's infuriating. So for the... <laughs> For the last year prior to the murders, Driver's main focus had been on a kid named Damien Eccles. Um, his, I think his birth name was actually Michael Hutchison, but he changed it. Eccles is his stepdad, like his stepdad adopted him, so he changed his last name to Eccles. Damien came from, um, I think it was a saint, Saint Damien. He was really into like Catholicism at some point. And there was a St. Damien, and he, like, thought he was cool, and so he changed his name to that. So that's where that came from. So Damien was a high school dropout who lived in Marion in Lakeshore Estates Trailer Park. Lakeshore was one of the poorest neighborhoods in the county, and it was ranked in the nation's, ten, the nation's poorest 10%, so super, super poor. Um, most of the neighborhood, including the Eccles, were on, like, state and federal assistance. And he was living with his sister, his mother, his stepfather, and his grandmother in a two-bedroom trailer. No, thank you. Um, 
when Driver first encountered Damien, it was over a year before the murders, and it was because Damien's ex-girlfriend, Deanna, her mom had called the police to report that he was threatening her and the family. So the two had broken up that week, and Deanna, Deanna said that um, he'd been harassing her ever since. So her parents told Driver that Damien was trying to get her into, quote, black magic and that type of thing. So let me tell you about how Damien looked. You know how he looked. I know. He was described as different than the other teenagers in the area. Like, he had black hair, and he also wore, like, a lot of black. He was our definition of an emo kid. He was like a goth emo. put it out there like that. Well, yeah. Yes. So obviously he worships Satan. He must because he's an emo kid. Right. To be honest, I was an emo kid. I mean, I didn't worship Satan. I'm just going to. I had my, I had my, there was a time in my life where. I'm just going to say, I have a lot of black clothes. Like, I almost wear black every single day. It's slimming. I know. I like black. It's slimming. It is slimming. Also, every time I have my nails done, every time they're black. That's the oh, only color. That's the only color nail polish I wear. That's the only color nail polish I wear too, though. You know, but I don't. You know, I don't even. I don't even. Yeah, I know. I don't even paint my nails and stuff very often. But when I do, literally the only color that I will do is black. Yes, why? Because it matches everything. It does. It really does every season. And you know, if you ask my kiddos what color my nails are, what are they going to say? They're going to say like her soul. Black like her soul because my kids are awesome. <laughs> <laughs> it's what I say too. So like, we that's must. What I'm saying worship satan basically we must we must worship and like piercings are a thing too all that stuff trust yeah. me i know yeah. look at me i'm i've got piercings um, piercings tattoos all you've that got, stuff. well you do too don't you yeah, i've got a nose ring i've got seven piercings girl so i've taken several out but i still have my tongue <laughs> like there's just all these still things have my tongue i would hope so i still have um, my tongue ring <laughs> okay not for long, though. <laughs> so he would have, like, he would paint his nails black. He um, wore black. He wore, like, concert t-shirts, like Metallica. Um, later on, this would be, like, the prosecutor's big defense. Like, he must be in a satanic ritualistic cult because of all this. Like, obviously. Um, so just because he was, like, a teenager going through this goth stage, he must have been an evil murderer. And he must have horribly sacrificed these poor children, even though Glitchell himself said they found no evidence or signs of this being like cult activity. But whatever. None. 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 So anyways, Damon was told to stay away from Deanna and her family. And it turns out that she actually wanted to be with Damien. And they'd broken up because her family like insisted on it. So within a month of the first call that police got from her mother, they got another call from her that the two had started seeing each other again i'm like okay so they go by the house and they're like talking to her mom and while they're talking to her damien and deanna come walking up so her mom starts yelling at him to get off her property and stay away from her daughter and deanna's like yelling back at her mom that she wants to be with him it's very dramatic teenage love i love him um Damien was just like, I just walked her home. <laughs> like, yeah, I was just like, walking her home. Like, you, I'll see you tomorrow. <laughs> right. And <laughs> police advised him again to leave her alone. And Deanna's mom was like, I'm, she's like telling cops, 
I'm going to take her to a psychiatrist because he must have done something to her mind. Oh, my God. <laughs> like, calm down. So six. <laughs> Listen, Karen. <laughs> right. So six nights later after this, police get another call that Deanna had run away from home and her mother thought that she was with Damien. So they knew that the two hadn't gone far because neither one of them drove. Like they didn't have a car or they didn't have <laughs> licenses. Like they're just walking. He just walked everywhere. That's what he did. He walked. He never had a car or license. <laughs> Come to find out, they were just in her backyard. <laughs> well, they had found an abandoned trailer in the same neighborhood that they lived in. And just, like, it was raining. And so they're like, we're just going to stop here. And they just were there. Not far from the house at all. So when they were found, reports from the police stated that they were both partially nude from the waist down. Okay. So... Nothing cock blocked them. Okay. They totally did. Um, nothing was reported. (laughs) Teenage. (laughs) Sorry, but that's part of your teenage life. Right. For some. You're supposed Uh, to like got caught in the act in an abandoned house. You gotta like push a dresser in front of the door or something. Jeez. Um (laughs) listen and learn. (laughs) Just kidding. I'm not condoning that. Do not do that, children. Hopefully, children don't also don't don't break and enter into yeah don't do that either this is all bad don't listen to why are you listening to us so (laughs) um nothing was reported stolen but police charged them with burglary and sexual misconduct okay so they were taken to the county jail and driver was notified and then um someone went from the juvenile office to damien's house and searched his room because this is like reason for that right like why the hell would you go search like why what Uh, whatever so they searched his room and they left his house with some of his journals and notebooks so they told his mother pam that they would be returned and they never were um because driver thought that they were evidence that damien was interested in the occult so these notebooks were full of like drawings that he'd done and poems he'd written and even like poems and stuff that he had like copied from books that he liked. That was like a big thing for him. He was super into like reading and literature and like the histories of all different types of religions and cultures and all that stuff. Yeah. Like he was super into that stuff. Um, I'm going to read you an example, just a short little example of a poem that was in his notebook. Okay. I'm a poet. <laughs> <laughs> holy men tell us life is a mystery they embrace that concept happily but some mysteries bite and bark and come to get you in the dark a rain of shadows a storm a squall daylight retreats night swallows all if good is bright if evil's gloom high evil walls the world's entomb now comes the end the drear dark fall okay so this comes from dean kuntz's novel dark fall mm-hmm. i don't think that Coates and his novels are known for being devil worshiping like I know they're not (laughs) it's literally just right but when driver saw this and like the other things like this in his notebooks his mind was made up that he's like he's into the occult here's the the thing though here's the thing though like if you've got it it's good versus evil for people that's all it is is if you see something that is remotely darkening um i mean sad is dark to people and 
this kid was an emo kid. It was just a sad life. He was poor. He lived in a trailer, exactly. a crowded trailer. He was sad. He wanted out. It had nothing to do with him being a Satan worshiper. Right. I mean, we, it, he was a depressed kid. Yes. And he was actually like depressed. Like he was clinically depressed. He was. No, he was. And that's what I'm saying. He was a depressed kid. And they, they use their variation of it as good versus evil. So exactly. he must. He must think because he's a depressed kid and he wears black and he acts sad and he reads dark poems or anything that right. he must be a Satan worshiper. He must and be. that shit drives me insane that people want to go and freaking stereotype people that way. Right. No, just help them. They're depressed. Be helpful. They need help. Yeah. Just yes. All of that. <laughs> so <laughs> Deanna was released to her parents. And Damien was ordered to be held at a juvenile detention center about an hour north of West Memphis. And that's another thing that drives me nuts about this case is he literally didn't even do anything wrong. He didn't do anything. He was dating this girl. That's it. He, he literally, but I mean, like staying at a juvenile hall, like he wasn't doing anything wrong. No, he was his life he at was, all. He wasn't. Um, the only thing that I don't agree with is that he had dropped out of school, but he was poor, though. Exactly. And he, a lot of people that grow up like that, that's how it ends up working out for them. It like a lot of them. It's not because he didn't want to go to school. It's because their family was so poor that exactly. they needed help. And they were poor. Yes. So um, he sent to the detention center. Um, <laughs> the, <laughs> the entire time he was there. He obeyed all of their rules, and according to the center's records themselves, he, quote, treated its staff with the utmost respect. So, even though all that's going on, Driver heard rumors that Damien and Deanna, they had intended to conceive a child, and then after its birth, the child would be sacrificed in a satanic ritual. Oh, Jesus Christ. So, he drove Damien, like himself, he drove him to a psychiatric hospital in Little Rock because he heard those rumors 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 so according to driver he said that damien told me he was a witch so he later claimed quote i think his claim was that he was a wiccan and he worshiped goddesses well apparently in the small minds of some of these detectives and even the community at that time practicing wiccan means that you're an evil witch that worships satan that's not that's not what wicca is that is not what Wicca is. Wicca is actually a religion that worships the earth and it follows the practice of like white witchcraft. Wiccans don't even believe in Satan, like at all. No, it's, it's they don't. They, they don't. don't at all. They, they believe in the rule of three, which is basically like karma. So they believe if you do something evil or like terrible, then evil comes back to you in threes. In threes, right. But it wasn't because some devil made you do it. It's because you chose to do it. Has because nobody watched the craft? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> right so you do something bad it's going to come back times three you do something good it's going to come back to you times three like that's what it is but w basically wiccans believe that you're 100 percent responsible for your actions like you can't say satan made me do it you can't oh i'm this is for satan no <laughs> so this whole thing started out as a modern day witch trial like it did they, it did they heard witch and they're like oh my gosh satan <laughs> like burn them at the stake <laughs> right <laughs> They saw someone different that they didn't understand. And then these poor boys get martyred and they're like, well, shit, he looks like a witch. He 
he listens to evil rock music and wears black. He must have sacrificed them to the devil. Even though there's no connection to the boys and him whatsoever. Any like evidence, literally zero. Right. Nothing as that in, proves this. He wasn't even in the same area as the houses. Right. Nothing. So when um, Damien was at the psychiatric hospital, they noted that he wasn't involved in Satanism. Satanism. Said that weird. But <laughs> with witchcraft and like Wicca and all that. And he was diagnosed with major depression there. So he was there for three weeks and he was released with a prescription for depression. And they notified driver that he was not considered to be a threat or danger to himself or others. And driver's like, huh, we'll see about that. So he continued to monitor Damien over the next year. And he was just like convinced the entire time, like he's involved in the occult. Um, it's, it's, it's happening. I see it. Even That's though he, because all he wanted to do was be a hero and he wasn't. He, he was right. He was just idiot. making shit up. He was a dumbass. <laughs> How do he you was feel a dumbass. about him? <laughs> I'm just going to keep calling him what it is. He was a dumbass. Uh, hey, hey, dude, you're a dumbass. <laughs> so, um, he even continued to monitor him after him and his mom and his sister moved to Oregon 2,000 miles away from West Memphis because he's a dumbass he's a psycho dumbass right so he this psycho dumbass why are you so obsessed with me (laughs) (laughs) like why are you so obsessed with me um driver contacted the juvenile authorities in oregon and he told them that damien and several of his associates were involved in a satanic cult that he and his girlfriend were both placed in a psychiatric hospital which is not true um (laughs) That he had threatened to kill his girlfriend's parents, that he claims he's a witch, and that he and his girlfriend were planning on having a child and sacrificing said child to Satan himself. Even though all this stuff was already proven wrong. And that they suspected that Damien's parents were also involved in the Satanic belief system. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> so, organ, uh, organ. I just combined organ and organ's juvenile. Like we, <laughs> organ's like, we don't want him to send him back. <laughs> well, no, what they did was they met with I, him. And they basically said, after that meeting that was very uneventful, um, that he denied being involved in Satanism and that he expressed major displeasure with Driver harassing him. Um, He did tell them that he was like Wiccan and like all of this stuff, even though he was like, this isn't actually your business because it's my religion and whatever, but I have no problem telling you. Um, So the officer there recommended that he be supervised at a minimum level for the next four months until he turned 18 because he wasn't crazy (laughs) he wasn't crazy but he was still on probation for breaking into that trailer yes so he was like minimum level supervision and then in four months you turn 18 whatever driver did not like that and because he's a dumbass he was like well damien tried to contact deanna and that violates his probation and organ was like dude come on like they did they didn't even respond to that they're like stop um because he just had to keep on like he was literally obsessing over it and that's like why are you so obsessed with me literally <laughs> damien is like, regina get a hobby dude get <laughs> is <a> regina hobby. <laughs> get a fucking hobby like collect stamps go do something they had his hobby his hobby was damien so Take up some crochet. Sorry, I had to take a little sip. Um, <laughs> I've been talking for a while. 
<laughs> do something. So Damien's depressed. He's like living in Oregon. He misses his girlfriend. Like he's a 17 year old that's moved 2000 miles away from the place he's lived his entire life. Mm-hmm. So he misses his friends and especially his best friend, Jason Baldwin. The two of them were always together. Like either Jason was at Damien's house or whatever, vice versa. They were always together. Yeah. He also missed Jack Eccles. That was his stepfather that adopted him. Um, they moved to Oregon, I think, because Pam and Jack had like split up. And once they moved to Oregon, Pam had gotten back together with Damien's biological father, Joe Hutchison. Mm-hmm. So he and Joe didn't know each other very well. And they would like often butt heads like Joe didn't understand. Like he admitted, I didn't understand him. Um, Which, one night. Again, go that goes back to some people don't know how to handle right. children with depression or right. expressiveness. Ang- angsty teenagers. Um, yes and I mean I'll be honest I feel like every teenager goes through a stage oh yeah for sure every teenager goes through a stage we all have our stage where we don't get along with our parents um there's something out there that they don't understand right nobody understands me I'm a teenager I butt it I butt it heads with our parents all the time I mean everybody does and then when you're an adult and then you like have kids of your own, you're like, <laughs> then once oh. you grow up, you're like, wow, I was dumb. Teenagers are dumb. <laughs> yeah. Teenagers are dumb. Okay. Sorry, mom. And then you're the one calling your mom all the time. <laughs> yeah, that's true. You know, so, so yeah, <laughs> mom listens to this and she's like, she's going to be like, Crystal, you never call me. <laughs> <laughs> she's like, <laughs> she's going to listen to him and be like, Sam's the only one that calls me and it's annoying. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, geez. Love you, mom. Okay. So <laughs> they, so they're back together. Joe and Pam are back together. Um, one night, his parents called authorities and they said that they were afraid that he was going to hurt either them or himself. So he's taken to a local hospital where he's put on suicide watch. And then the next morning, like he insists that he was not going to hurt himself. He wasn't going to hurt anybody else. He did admit that he'd been depressed for a long time and mostly because of problems related to his family. Um, He expressed that he wanted to move back to Arkansas and he wanted to live with his stepdad. And the hospital notified the Oregon juvenile authorities about all this. And they were like, that sounds reasonable. So the juvenile authorities notified driver and told him, Damien's going to come back to Arkansas by bus and he's going to live with Jack Eccles. And he'll check in with you. Like he'll contact you when he gets there to check in. And driver's like, nah, bro. Like what? (laughs) So... He was, this was not the news he wanted. So he swore out an affidavit that stated that Damien violated the terms of his probation by, quote, threatening the lives of himself and his mother and father and by refusing to obey their lawful orders. Except that didn't happen. So he filed a petition and brought this to the Chancery Court, claiming that Damien Eccles is violating his probation by moving away from the home of his parents and returning to Marion. So this position never mentioned that the organ, the organ, I cannot say organ and juvenile, the organile, <laughs> organ juvenile authorities had approved of this move. Like it never mentioned they approved it. Um, so when he gets to Arkansas, he is now considered a delinquent and he's taken into custody and sent to the juvenile detention center there again. I know this poor kid just like lives in these juvenile detention He does. For no reason. For no reason. For so no reason. Yeah. He was just trying to move back to his stepdad. Like, 
and his, see his friends and his girlfriend and all that stuff. That he but, had already gotten approved to do. Yes. So he's pissed. Um, he's back at the same center. So it's reported from that center that one of the boys had scraped their arm and it was bleeding. And in the report, it says that Damien grabbed his arm and sucked the blood from it. So that's not cool. Um, <laughs> director, do- it's just reported. Like there's like, he didn't do it. <laughs> the director of the detention center was um, like, what the fuck? <laughs> and he's like, Damien needs mental health treatment. So he was then sent back to the psychiatric hospital in Little Rock. So he stayed there for two weeks and there his behavior again appeared a normal, a normal. Um, they did instruct him to continue taking his depression meds and he was cautioned that his behavior, like how it might appear to others, like don't do weird shit, basically. So he finally gets to return home to Marion and he's only got two months left until he turns 18 and he'll be out of driver's supervision. Mm-hmm. So driver insisted that Damien follow three requirements or else he would be violating probation. So he's like, you got to check in into my office once a week, like every week you got to check in. You have to follow a curfew and you have to enroll at a local Votech school and get your EGED. So, I mean, that's no big deal. Like that seems No, easy. it's not a big deal. But at the same time, you can't force somebody to get their GED. Well, Damien was signed with that. He signed a contract and he agreed to all of it. And by the end of December, he had earned his GED. Like he's not done. He was actually, he's actually a very smart well, and But I'm, I'm not like condoning it or condoning it. I'm not <laughs> saying it's bad. I am saying like he is some uh, didn't have to force somebody to do it. He per- wanted to go to school. It's not right. that he wanted to drop out. Right. So it wasn't a big deal, but I'm just like I'm just saying guy, like you can't is there a law? Is there a is is there a law that you can force somebody no, to go force somebody, their, like no. I don't think that's how that works. No, you cannot force somebody to get their <laughs> education. <laughs> so he he this end of December, he's got his GED, he's followed all the other requirements, and he had just turned 18. So driver's not like he can't get him he thinks mm-hmm. so um at this point he's begun dating 16 year old dominique here and he's gotten a job with a roofing company um he's keeping all of his appointments at the metal mental health center and um he's like seeing a therapist he told his therapist there about how he was told at the hospital that he could be another charles manson or ted bundy and First of all, who, what kind of hospital tells somebody that? Yeah, that's fucked up. And then, um, like that's he, super fucked up, especially when he hasn't done anything. Like, uh, ah. <laughs> he's also telling this therapist about like how he's been harassed by authorities and they think he's a satanic leader and all that stuff. Um, his therapist encouraged him to continue like his writings as a way to communicate his feelings. And he's like, okay, I can do that. Um, the therapist also said that he continuously questions like confidentiality issues because he wanted to be assured that like he wouldn't be misunderstood and like this wouldn't get out to people and they'd be like oh yeah he's he's evil um and with good reason given his background of being misunderstood just because the way he looks you know mm-hmm. so meanwhile driver still thought that he was a threat to the community and this brings us up to the time where the murders happened so now we're Damien up to speed with when the murders happen. Okay. 
so remember Glitchell had made the statement about looking into gang or cold activity like super early on in the investigation yes. yeah it was like super early on so and then Jones was his part was driver's partner that was the one that found the shoe yeah so he gave driver all the deets and driver was like obviously it was Damien and his cult followers like who else could it be so Steve Jones actually questioned Damien on May 7th, the day after the boys' bodies were discovered. Thing is, he didn't take any notes of this interview, like at all. And then the very next day, Detective Bill Durham and investigator Shane Griffith questioned both Damien and his best friend, Jason Baldwin. So I'm going to give you a little background on Jason now. Which, time out, before yes. you get into that. Okay. Here's the thing. There was no reason to question them to begin with. Well, the reason was because Driver knew that it must have been them. I know, but I'm just saying, like, it's this whole <laughs> you know, investigation I know makes me so mad because I've there was so mad literally, I know. <laughs> there was literally zero reason for them to be questioned at all. I mean, you want to get mad, you really need to read The Devil's Not. <laughs> I, I do want to read that. It, like I said, it's on my list to read. Um, I want to... Yeah. I want to read it. I haven't done it yet. I'm still reading a book right now. And I can't read two books at once. I'm not. No, no. Oh my God. That's madness. <laughs> so, <laughs> so uh, it is on my list though. I'm, it might be my next one then. It's really good. Yeah. Um, anyways, it's really good. It'll make you really, really mad. Um, <laughs> good to know. Good to know. So Jason Baldwin, he and Damien met when Jason was in seventh grade and Damien was in eighth grade. So they were like 12, 13-ish. Um, they had a study hall together. They both lived in sh- the Lakeshore trailer at the time, like the trailer park. Mm-hmm. And they both shared interests in skateboarding and heavy metal music. Well, they must just worship the devil. Exactly. Um, Jason would later describe their friendship, saying that others didn't understand them. Um, others had accused him of being a Satanist since he was in the sixth grade because he wore his hair longer and he wore like a lot of <laughs> concert tees. Like that man bun yeah. must well, be it wasn't, no it wasn't that man for. girl it wasn't that man bun it was that straight up mullet is what it was, it was that 90s oh, mullet. Okay. <laughs> like i'm gonna post pictures of them and it, it was a straight up 90s mullet yeah. like full-on billy ray cyrus happening yeah. um and he wore a lot of concert tees like metallica guns and roses i'll see osborne can I just say they had great taste in music? I was gonna say so. Basically, all the stuff I wear, cool. Right. <laughs> cool I cool, see cool. nothing wrong with this. <laughs> yep. So Jason said he always wore jeans and a concert tee, and he said that Damien more like straight, clean black clothes. So he said that the way that they dressed was one reason that people would criticize them because they didn't understand it. Like everyone else, either wore like sporty name brand clothes, like Adidas or Tommy Hilfiger. Or else they were like the country people that wore jeans and flannel and boots. Like nobody else dressed like them. So he felt like they stood out because they were the only ones that dressed like that. And they were the only ones that listened to that type of music. Your clothes are the whole reason you worship Satan. (laughs) Exactly. Um, Jason said he introduced Damien to Metallica and Damien introduced him to Pink Floyd. So there's a fun fact for you. Oh, okay. (laughs) Um, He also said that he knew that Damien wasn't living his desired life. And that just like Jason's own mother, Damien suffered from depression. So he thinks that that kind of helped their bond grow stronger because he could like relate to that. Um, Because he had a pretty tough time when it came to dealing with depression. 
um his mom was once battling such a severe depression that she had attempted suicide and he was the one that found her and called 911 oh no yeah um so they had they'd had a tough time throughout the years um when he was four his father had left his family and even though his father lived in arkansas he had like no contact with them whatsoever except one christmas he visited like 11 years after he left so jason once talked about him saying i don't care for him he don't care for us but jason was really close to his mother and he was like super protective of her and he appreciated like how hard she worked to support him and his younger brothers um he did well in school and he believed in god and firmly believed in right and wrong so he knew that Damien was interested in like all different kinds of religions and that he was especially interested in learning about like their roots and their origins and all that. Like, like I said before, he was into Wicca, he studied Catholicism. So Jason said that he didn't share those interests with Damien, but he also didn't mind that he was interested in that. Like, he's like, you do, you dude, like whatever. Um, so let me tell you why Jason was on driver's radar. So first of all, he was Damien's best friend, like, <laughs> but also because when he had first moved to Lakeshore when he was 12, he got into like a little bit of trouble. So there was this old tin building that was like adjoining to the trailer park and one um, wall was missing on the side of the building and there was like rusted car frames inside. So it was basically described by a lot of people as a clubhouse for the neighborhood kids. Like, it was, like, this abandoned place. There was, like, tall grass and weeds growing everywhere. And you can just, like, walk in because there was a missing wall. Yeah. So what just looked like a junkyard, basically. Basically, yeah. So one day when Jason was there with his younger brother and two other boys, the police came and they found him there. And they charged them with breaking and entering and criminal mischief because the police said that they broke some windows on some cars there. That were abandoned cars. <laughs> it seemed like it, yes. So, um, <laughs> let's just put that out there as in like old rusted abandoned cars. Yes. So John, jo John, jo John, I can't say words. John Fogelman. <laughs> well, I wouldn't be able to say that either. So <laughs> it's, it's actually not that hard. I just like got all kind of stumbled up <laughs> because I was going to, this is going to be why, because alliteration. John Fogelman was a juvenile judge. There's all the J's. <laughs> all the J's. He was a juvenile judge at the time. He actually was the prosecutor later in the trials, but at this time he was the juvenile judge. And he put Jason on probation for this and he ordered him to pay $450 in restitution, which was a huge amount for him and his mother. Um, because of this incident, he needed a probation officer and guess who he got? So he got Steve Jones, driver's assistant. <laughs> oh, okay. So, yeah. So, um, according to Jason, Jones had it out for him from the start. He said he once told Jason, I know you're trying to get a cult started. I'm like, okay. So <laughs> after that, according <laughs> to Jason, other kids around the area would say, we heard you and Damien have a cult. And he'd be like, no, where'd you hear that? <laughs> And they would be like, the police. <laughs> like, these boys never had a chance in this town. What the hell? No, no. And even when they moved, even when the one moved. 2,000 miles even... away. <laughs> Why is so obsessed with me? <laughs> oh, Jesus. 
I mean, Jesus is right. Like they needed some Jesus. <laughs> well, Somebody. they had Jesus. They had Jesus, but Damien had Satan. I'm not talking. <laughs> I mean, dang. I, yeah. I'm not talking about Damien and them needing Jesus. I'm talking the probation officer. I'm saying the probation they officer. They need they Jesus. They had Jesus, though. They had Jesus. But they did not have Jesus. No. They need to no. go find them some they Jesus. <laughs> they absolutely. So, all right, we're going back to May 8th when Damien and Jason were both questioned. So, Durham and Griffin went out to Baldwin's twi- trailer. Baldwin's trailer around His 5 p.m. <laughs> I'm hunting weapons. <laughs> Literally, when I was a child, I had like the speech thing where all my W's, all my R's I said is W's. <laughs> and I think I just reverted back to that. <laughs> I'm hunting weapons. <laughs> oh gosh. <laughs> okay. They go to they go to Jason's trailer around 5 p.m. They knock on the door and Jason answers. So he steps outside and he's followed by Damien and Damien's girlfriend Dominie. So they ask the boys where they were on the night of the murders. They're like, Mercy, where were you on the night of the murders? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) So the boys said on May 5th that they had went to Jason's uncle house, uncle, his uncle's house. (laughs) I'm telling you, my mind is gone after this. What are you drinking? (laughs) Water. I am drinking. I'm actually drinking water. (laughs) So (laughs) they went to Jason's uncle's house so Jason could cut the grass there. Okay cut the grass for his uncle then Damien said that he called his stepdad to come pick them up and they were picked up at 6 p.m so Damien's stepdad took Jason and Dominie home and then they went home okay so after they answered that question Griffin and Durham took out a list of questions they had like gotten ready for him they're like okay all the questions um they questioned these teenagers in the yard they were never told that they were suspects or read their Miranda rights or told they could have a lawyer present any of that none of their parents were there like and they're not gonna know that i mean they're they're freaking they didn't go to school (laughs) they don't know what there's shit i didn't know excuse me but i'm gonna i'm gonna pause you for a minute you remember the one time i got arrested (laughs) (laughs) oh my god i was not prepared but yes (laughs) yes the one time it was just (laughs) that one time the one time and let me tell you folks it was not it was not something that I should have ever gotten arrested for either it wasn't anything like remotely like murder or anything it was um, oh my god I wasn't arrested for murder (laughs) yeah it wasn't anything like that it was fighting I I stole a pack of gum (laughs) no it was a girl I was I was dropping my son off to his dad and me and me and my son's dad at the time did not get along (laughs) very well um true and his brother was with him and his brother's girlfriend well his brother's girlfriend had gotten out to get my kid from from me to put him in the vehicle um and she was just like calling me horrible names saying give me him you're a horrible mother and I'm like oh hell no you said bitch (laughs) oh hell no Uh, that's literally what I said I was like I'm sure I I can picture it 
here, Gunner, go back to mommy's car. <laughs> Close your eyes, earmuffs. <laughs> so he, he's like this, he had to have been like three at the time. He was super young. It wasn't, I was carrying him. That's how young he was. What is know? the point of this story? <laughs> um, anyways, hold on. So <laughs> how did we get here? <laughs> I ended up getting arrested or whatever, but like I, at that time, wasn't even a teenager. I mean, I was read my rights, but at that time, I didn't know like all of the things that you have to go through when you get arrested. Right. Um, you, you don't know the rights that you have because that's not common knowledge and like, n- no, like regular they people. Didn't, they like, didn't offer me a lawyer to be around. Um, they didn't offer me that, but they did offer me like a phone call and at that time, they were like, you don't need to have a lawyer. Like, it's it's going to be a simple, like, in and out thing. They literally just processed me and I got to leave. Right. It was just, it was almost like going into, like, a drunk tank where when you're arrested to just cool down and then they'll let you out. <laughs> yeah. Um, I didn't have to pay. There was no, like, fine to pay to get me out. There was no bail. There was nothing like that. Like, my right. husband now picked me he's the one that picked me up or whatever. But when he picked me up, he was, I got, I was more scared to get picked up because my husband, he is not, he's not a mean man. He is a super calm man. And when you make him mad, like the disappointment just radiates off him. Calm can be creepy though. I'm just saying. (laughs) So disappointed in me. So I'm just saying like, as a teenager, being in a situation where you're being questioned by cops, you don't know what's allowed. They, what's exactly. Not. They don't know. And they just know that they're kids and these are police officers and you have to listen to police officers. Like, that's what they yeah. know. That's what most kids know. Like, they don't know all of this. So they're like questioning there in the yard. Um, they asked them if they knew the boys who were killed and they said that they had never heard of them before the murders. Um, they asked Damien how he thought the boys had died. And he said, mutilation like cut up all three um i heard they were in the water drowning um which was all stuff that had been put out by the newspapers and all over the news and all that stuff like it's not they're gonna try to make it out like well he knew how how it happened he must have done it like ridiculous um they then asked him do you believe in god or the devil so first of all what the hell does that have to do with anything involving these three boys murders and also, what if you say you're atheist? Like, exactly. Like, do your fucking job. Like, that has nothing to do with anything. Why like, are you bringing religion into this? Why? Exactly. Don't do that. That has nothing, no effect at all. Like, that has nothing to do with anything. So to this, Damien said, I believe in God, but a female God. And evil, like an evil force, not a devil. Because he's like, he's a practicing Wiccan at that point. Like, yeah. he... Um, he believes in mother nature. That's right. He believes in a God. He believes, a goddess. Yeah. He believes. Yes. It's he, he's a fine kid. Like, leave him alone. <laughs> so then they asked him, how does being questioned field? And he responded scared, obviously. Um, they then said, would you take a polygraph test? And to that, Damien said, I wouldn't fail. Griffin then asked, why would your fingerprints be at the crime scene? And Damien said, they won't be. Like, what are these questions? 
So then they began asking Jason all the same questions um, that they'd asked Damien. And he was like more intimidated. His answers were shorter. Um, he told him he didn't know the victims. He didn't know why someone would commit such a crime. Um, when he was asked, he said that he did believe in God. They asked him how he thought the boys died. And he said, I don't know. Um, they asked him, how do you think the killer felt? And he said, I don't know. Killing or watching someone die would make me feel disgusted. And then he told Griffin that being questioned made him feel like a suspect. Like, obviously. Like, what the hell? Yeah. So then Jason's mother, Gail Grinnell, drives up. And she's like, oh, hell no. Like, what the hell? <laughs> so <laughs> Mama <laughs> loves your pumpkin. Get in the car. <laughs> exactly. Well, don't get in the car. This is your own house. Like, get off my property. Oh, <laughs> yeah, that too. I guess that's right. <laughs> yeah. So Durham wrote in his notes that she was, quote, very upset and accused of us of picking on her son. And she did not want us talking to him. So he said that they attempted to reason with her, but she wasn't having it. <laughs> um, so then Damien was questioned another time alone without lawyers or parents present on May 10th. So this is still, like I said, it's super early in the investigation. They're like, just like zoned in on him, like super early for no reason. Um, this time he was given a polygraph test. And according to detective notes, he had been untruthful and was involved in the murders. But this polygraph test was not, like, recorded or, like, noted or anything like that. Like, it's just the detective notes they have. So them saying that he failed is just according to their notes that they could have just wrote whatever the hell they wanted to. Yeah. On May 12th, police questioned Pam Eccles, Damien's mother, who had moved back with his sister. Like, they moved back. So she told them that after Joe had brought Damien home that day, they all drove to visit some friends, like a family friend. Um, the friends turned out to not be at home at that time. And so they spoke briefly with the friend's daughter. And they left a note with the daughter for the friends. And then they stopped by the pharmacy to pick up Damien's prescription. And then went home. And Damien talked on the phone with two girls who lived in Memphis. So all of this was almost, almost identical with an account that Damien had given two days before when they questioned him and gave him the supposed polygraph test. Um, the friends of the family verified that they had gotten that note. A prescription had been filled for Damien that afternoon. And those two girls verified that they had talked to him that night. So, okay. Mm -hmm. Uh-huh. So now I want to talk about Jesse Miss Kelly. That's the third suspect in what would come to be known as the West Memphis Three. But before that, I have to get into Vic Vicki Hutchison. So you remember okay. Vicki? Vicky, she enters this whole situation because um, there was a complaint from the local truck stop that she had just started working at. So the owners of the truck stop reported a $200 overrun on a customer's credit card, and they suspected her because it happened on her shift. Like she just started working there. This happens on her shift. They're like, uh, looks sketch. So Detective Donald Bray was supposed to be interviewing Vicky about this. So this is going on when the boys were like still missing before they had found their bodies. So that day, Vicky brings in her eight-year-old son, Aaron, to the police interview. Like, why? <laughs> That's inappropriate. Super. Um, Detective Bray is like, well, maybe this kid knows something about those boys because he's like the same age as them. And it turns out that Aaron actually was friends with these boys, okay? Mm -hmm. At one time, he tells police that a black man in a maroon car picked michael moore up from school that day 
So that that story changes a few times after that. We'll get into that later. But what, one of these, by the way, it, find, come to find out Aaron's colorblind. So maroon car, we don't know where he got that from. Like he doesn't know. Yeah. Anyways, um, while Bray is interviewing Vicky, like during this interview, he finds out that the boys' bodies were found. And he like tells them the news like during this interview he's like oh by the way like that's also not appropriate um like at all <laughs> so then vicky tells him that chris byers and michael moore had asked her if aaron could come and play with them in the robin hood hills that afternoon but she hadn't let she hadn't let him go she was like no he can't go play so this story also changes some later um as for her job at the truck stop and the missing money that was being questioned, I was like curious, so I just looked. Um, <laughs> basically, Bray told the owners of the truck stop that they must have miscounted or like made an error in their paperwork because there was no missing money. <laughs> the truck stop owners were like, um, yeah, there is. And they fired her. So that's what happened there. Um, so meanwhile, Vicki has volunteered to Detective Bray that she's going to do her own investigation since she's like on the inside of the neighborhood she says she can like find out information for bray and he's like yeah okay that's cool um he asked her if she knew anything about cult activity in the area and originally she said no and then she called back a few days later and was like some kids in the, the neighborhood they like know about this cult so i'm gonna do some snooping okay mm -hmm. keep, keep in mind that, that it's public knowledge now that there's a reward fund for people like people are donating to this fund for like any info that'll help catch the killer and at this point this fund has like thirty five thousand dollars in it and she later says that she really was just trying to get the reward money so mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> mm -hmm. so she never explained why but she started her little private investigation with jesse miscali jr so he was a 17-year-old that lived in a trailer park near Vicky. He would sometimes babysit for her kids. Like, they, they knew of each other, like, well. She said that they hung out a lot and they'd gotten pretty close. And so he would, like, talk to her about a lot of stuff. And she said, at one time, he told me about his friend Damien and that his friend, like, drank blood and stuff. So she knew that Damien was a suspect. And so she was, so she's like... Putting She's putting stuff out there. Right. Right. So she's like, I'm going to keep close to Jesse so I can get info on Damien because they're like friends, whatever. So I'm going to give you a little of Jesse's background. Um, Jesse, Miss Kelly Jr., he was known as a little scrappy guy. So he was just barely over five feet tall and he had a reputation as a fighter. Um, his mother had abandoned the family not long after he was born. And his father had gone through several marriages after she left. And because of this, Jesse had nine siblings. And all but three were older than him. So he was one of the youngest ones. Um, he was always small for his age. And his main memory of childhood was like fighting all the time. Mm -hmm. So he said he had to take up for himself to let people know they couldn't run over him just because he was small. So he said... He'd been picked on by brothers and sisters since he was like four or five like they would always try to tell him what to do which like yeah that's what brothers and sisters do when they're young um he had been in trouble since kindergarten and his teachers recommended that he be seen by a psychologist 
So the psychologist reported his family as loving but rough. Um, his father was a mechanic, and according to Jesse, his father drank beer like a fish ever since the day I was born. But, <laughs> but he said he also said that his father was a sweet guy that would do anything for anyone, and that he was his role model. So um, Jesse was identified as slow by teachers, like as soon as he started school, like when he was seven. He could not say his ABCs past the letter R, and he couldn't count past 15. Oh, that's sad. That is very sad. So he scored a 67 on an intelligence test, and um, an examiner reported that he was mildly mentally retarded. So he was put into special ed classes, but teachers were also having problems with his behavior. They said that he was very impulsive, indifferent, he was stubborn, he was uncooperative, and he was prone to rage. It sounds to me like on top of having the low IQ, he, he might have had like ADHD or something like that, just from the sound of it. I don't know. But it was suggested several times throughout the years that he be treated at a residential facility or like a hospital, but his family didn't have the money for that. So that like just never happened. Um, he was kept in kindergarten for two years and in second grade for two years. So by the time he was 11, he had only made it to the third grade. Um, his IQ was now recorded at 75, which placed him at the very low range of normal. But his verbal skills fell into like the mildly retarded range. Um, his reputation as a troublemaker was growing. He was becoming regarded as dangerous because he had hit a girl in the head. <laughs> he had stabbed a boy with a pencil. And he had severely cut his own hand by, like, punching windows out of a car. So, um, at one point, he got suspended for splattering ketchup all over the cafeteria. And, like, he had to go to court because of it. And he told the juvenile judge that he wanted to drop out of school. But the, the judge ordered him to keep going to school. So, by the time he was 16, even though he was barely at a fourth grade level, for some reason, he had been promoted to ninth grade. I feel like at this well, point, that's, that's I feel like good. at this point, teachers were probably just like, oh, I don't want to deal just, with this. I just don't want to deal. That's what I was about to say. That's not good. It's it just sounds good. to me it's like really there's, sad. Some, like, there's some lazy teachers that just didn't feel like um, dealing with it and helping him anymore. They just skipped him on. Yeah. Because let's just get him out of school. Yep. Sad, sad, sad. Um, his last IQ test was given when he was 16, right before he had dropped out of school. And he ranked in the lowest 4% of the students that were his age. He said he didn't care about school, and he just figured he'd be a mechanic like his dad. Although he did dream of becoming a, a pro wrestler at some point. Oh, okay. Big dreams. <laughs> dreams. So that's Jesse. Okay. So back to Vicky. So when she asked Jesse if he knew of a kid named Damien Eccles, Jesse said he did, but he didn't know him well. So this is already different from what Vicky had said earlier, by the way. Mm hmm Um... She said she then asked him if Damien was into witchcraft, because that's like normal conversation, right? Um, and Jesse told her, like, he's like, I don't really know. I just know he's kind of a weird person, but like, I don't, I don't know him. Um, she then, then she asked him if he knew Jason. He was like, well, yeah, I've known him since sixth grade. He's a nice person. We've always gotten along, whatever. But like, he wasn't really close to either of them, like at all. He just kind of knew of them. For some reason, Vicky thought this was a big lead. So... <laughs> How is that a lead? 
right like she's like jesse's he's a big lead like he he's friends with these people like what <laughs> um she told the west memphis police that she had a hunch and so she wanted to try to talk to damien alone and they're like whatever you, you do you go for it like this is how we hold investigations right um she got that hunch she got that hunch <laughs> right so top-notch policing guys right um and so, sis who is you to have a hunch and act on it like who are you like stop it <laughs> <laughs> who are you <laughs> so she tells jesse she wants to go out with damien this is a 32 year old mother of two and she's telling the 16 year old that she wants to go out with someone that he went to school with not to mention the 16 year old has like such a low iq that he's borderline mentally retarded like what is wrong with you like so of course he's like he's like oh yeah I'll, I'll try to help you out whatever um i'll try to figure out a way to introduce y'all so she tells detective bray jesse's gonna set up this meeting okay and so bray tells jerry driver and they're like yeah this is a good idea like this is super normal police protocol right <laughs> um super normal so even though they they even told her that she should like really get into the whole like undercover act and she should pretend that she's interested in the occult like get you some library books that are related to the occult and like spread them all around your house and get damien over there like do it lure him in with right. the satanic <laughs> with his satan books and detective ray was even like here this is a list of library books that are related to the occult that you can check out <laughs> And she was like, oh, I don't have a library card. And he's like, that's okay. You can choose mine. Like that happened. She used his library card <laughs> to check out these books. Like what is happening right now? <laughs> that's super discreet. Okay. Okay. Like <laughs> instead of actually investigating these boys murders, which is terrible. Like somebody needs to be finding what happened to these poor boys. No, instead they're like helping this woman work undercover basically she's like really bad at it <laughs> so bad at it so they can just like link these weird kids to something they had nothing to do with because they dress in black like we seriously? need you we need you to go and do this and basically frame them <laughs> right i need you right exactly like do your damn job look for the sick fuck that actually killed these boys like what the <laughs> for example they could have been looking into mr bojangles but they completely ignored that lead do you remember him? Mm -hmm. um, I'm going to talk about him now. I'm going to talk about him. Let me, let me tell you about Mr. Bojangles. Girl. <laughs> and my mama told me to tell you. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. That. <laughs> so, May 5th, okay? Same night the boys disappeared. West Memphis police are also called in to investigate this incident at a nearby Bojangles. Like, super nearby. It's like about a mile from robin hood hills where the boys are from okay so they got this call between the first two calls that they got about the missing boys like in between these calls a little after 8 30 that night an african-american man enters the bojangles witnesses said that he seemed disoriented his shoes were covered in mud and that he had blood all over him like on his face and his arm so he goes into the women's bathroom and he stays there for like an hour and a half the manager calls the police and by the time like they're like oh my gosh he's been there forever like this is weird they call the police by the time the police got there he had left okay 
the officer that responded to this call was Regina Meeks, the same officer that had went to the buyer's home and then also to, I want to say, the Moore home. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So in between those, she went here. She already knew that the, one of the boys was missing. She knew that Chris was already missing. When she gets there, she pulls up to the drive-thru and talks to the manager through the drive-thru window. She never went in. She never wrote a, a report on it that night. Like, nothing. No other officers came by that night to, like, look into it or follow up or anything. The next day, the manager calls police again. They're like, hey, there's, like, we noticed there's blood on the walls in the bathroom. And at this point, like, everyone knows about the missing boys. So this guy's like, well, shit, this could be related to that. Like, they need to come look into this, whatever. Yeah. So two detectives came by. They got a description of the man. They took blood scrapings from the wall, and they left. Okay. That's all that came of it. That's it. Later on during the trials, the defense asks Detective Bryn Ridge um, what the date was that they sent the blood scrapings from Bojangles to the lab to be analyzed. And Ridge replied, they were never sent. So he was in a, yeah, yeah. He was then asked where the scraping sample was now. And he said, I don't know. They were lost. That's my mistake. I lost some evidence. How do you not lose your job? Okay. <laughs> like what the actual hell? Exactly. Like, <laughs> also. Like your ass needs to be. It's like, this is important. Oh. Uh, also. Just to be noted, there was an African-American hair that was found on one of the boys. So maybe, just maybe, they should have looked into Mr. Bojangles instead of just deciding right off the bat, well, this weird kid and his friends must have done it, even though there's no evidence that links them, but whatever. Like, seriously? Okay. <laughs> Done with that rant. I'm going to go back to the ridiculous undercover investigation that's happening. <laughs> so... The next time Jason and Damien are walking around the neighborhood um, that Jesse was in, he like goes up to them and he's like, hey, I know this woman that wants to meet you. <laughs> so he brings them to Vicky's trailer and then Jesse like leaves. He like introduces them and he's gone. He walks back to his own trailer and he said within 15 minutes, he saw Damien's mom drive past him and he just assumed that Damien had called his mom to like come pick them up since like he didn't drive. So as far as Jesse knew, that was the only contact that Vicky had had with Damien and Jesse. Not Jesse, Jason. JJ's. Jays are messing me up today. <laughs> um, <laughs> so Vicky later told West Memphis police that she and Damien had developed a relationship. So she claimed that she had calculated and planned all of this, and Damien was very passionate about it. Um, but they never had sex in this eight-day romance romance that happened. Like she had like whatever meanwhile damien has like always he's denied this claim like always he says they never like even really hung out he was dating dominate at the time who was now pregnant with his child um then vicky tells police that damien had invited her to an esbat so she said she <laughs> she'd like look this word up in the dictionary because she didn't know what it meant and it means a gathering of witches so he invited her to this gathering of witches. She said, Damien and Jesse picked her up in a Red Ford Escort. Now, remember, Damien doesn't have a license or a car. And he's, like, never been known to drive, like, ever. And no Red Ford Escort has ever been mentioned ever again and wasn't owned by, like, anyone related to anyone. <laughs> so that's <laughs> not 
coincidence no. or <laughs> right <laughs> so she claims that he picked her up and he drove her to a field in marion and when they got there um she saw all these people there and they had like their arms and their faces were painted black and they were like taking their clothes off and touching each other so she's like i was offended by this satanic orgy that he had brought me to and i asked damien to take me home so he did but jesse stayed behind also she couldn't identify any of the other people because the face paint so that's very convenient um she couldn't identify any of these other imaginary people on these <laughs> random people right on this make-believe orgy yes make-believe satan orgy on may 27th um gitchell ridge and alan questioned vicky and aaron her eight-year-old son so vicky told them like what she had told bray about like the orgy and all that and then aaron told them that he and the victims had gone into the woods a lot together and that they had a clubhouse there and sometimes they saw and spied on five men with black faces who gathered in the woods so he said these men spoke spanish around a fire they smoked strange cigarettes they killed animals they talked about quote bad stuff and they'd done quote nasty stuff so th this is very vague he was very vague about his details <laughs> nasty <laughs> they're just doing they, they done nasty stuff <laughs> so detectives are like this is real vague so they like start pressing him for more details like why are you bringing this eight-year-old boy into this ridiculous witch hunt by the way like his friends got murdered like stop it i can't and he's eight he's eight at one, he's eight he's eight exactly so at one point ridge asked him what kind of bad stuff were they talking about and aaron said quote um jesus and god I mean, the devil and God. They said they like the devil and they hate God. This is an eight-year-old kid. He doesn't know what's going on. Like, it, oh, he's being told. He's, it just, sounds like he's, he's being told what to say. He's literally being told yes. to say this. This is terrible. I have, I have a nine-year-old, for God's sakes. I know exactly how it is. He's literally <laughs> being told to right. say this stuff. So the next it's so day, so easy to manipulate a young child. Oh yeah, oh yeah. I mean, I could tell. I could tell Gunner, hey Gunner, go. I mean, there's days that I do. Like Gunner, go tell Aiden to come here, and he can go and um, be like, Aiden, mom said you need to go do this. <laughs> right. <laughs> that's not what I said. <laughs> not, not what I said. But okay. <laughs> so the next day, Vicky brings the police this earring that's shaped like a skull and has like a snake wrapped around it and she claims that it's damien's and he dropped it at her house one time that he was visiting and when she found it like aaron saw it and he was like well that's exactly like one that one of the men in the woods was wearing okay <laughs> sure vicky um so on june 2nd police still didn't have like a single piece of evidence that would tie anyone to the crime this is like almost a month after it they're they're like oh my gosh everybody wants us to catch this person like what should we do they decide that they're going to give vicky a polygraph test because because why not because she's like super related to this case right um after the test durham reported that she was telling the truth and they were like 
well, hot damn, now we know that it was Eccles and we really need to focus on getting him. So just because of what the Durham's note said that she was telling the truth. So mm-hmm. year, keep in mind, years after all of this, Vicky has stated that she was lying during all this time. Like, she's like, I was not proud of how, I'm not proud of how I behaved. I was like, I was a terrible person. I was really just trying to get reward money. Like, she said that. But okay, cool. Um, So I am going to end it now. Like, I think I'm going to end here. I feel, feel like I've been talking forever. But there's still so, so much to tell. I can't wait. I can't wait. So, Even though... Even though I already know the entire case. You already know it. You're going to be angry. I'm going to tell you all about it. I'm going to make you real mad. Next week, I'll talk about Jesse's forced false confession and all the trials, and we'll get all angry all over again. So. All over again. And the trials, once we get to the trials, I think that's really going to set a lot of people off because oh, yeah. oh, the yeah. trials, all of the lack of evidence and just, oh man, there's guys. Just no, there's no evidence. <laughs> Guys, there's literally zero evidence. If you don't know the case, you don't know from this episode why we're getting so angry yet, but it's so stupid. It's so stupid. It's so stupid. Girl. (laughs) So, yeah. Yeah, There you go. Until next week. Until next week. That's part two. (laughs) Part two. So you're off the hook, chick. You don't got to research next week. (laughs) I know. In fact, I already know. I already know my next case. Um, it's also probably going to be a two-parter. Oh, good. I get a little break. <laughs> You'll get a little break as well. Um, so just I like. I don't know if my blood pressure can handle. <laughs> no. <laughs> I know. I know. Okay. So, so everyone Anywho, follow, follow us. Follow us on the stuff, you know, the gram, uh, Serialholic Sisters underscore podcast, or yeah. Gmail when you have some suggestions. Yeah. You can DM us on Instagram, some of our listeners have done that way yeah like tell us your thoughts on the case and yeah we we want to hear your thoughts um I've gotten a couple thoughts on the west or the west I'm that's this case (laughs) it's like that's what I'm doing right now (laughs) the Mesa case Um, oh yeah I did get get a couple of um people that have reached out and told me their thoughts and they said the same thing as me so thanks (laughs) (laughs) thanks for agreeing with me (laughs) thanks for agreeing with me because people are stupid (laughs) so stupid but um yeah yeah there you go follow us on the stuff facey space all that junk facey space okay girl until next week let's be awkward all right bye bye